This morning, we're going to be unpacking together the next steps in the story of Jesus' crucifixion. It's a story we've been walking through slowly together over the last two or three weeks. A story told by John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends. The section we're going to unpack together this morning is in John chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn over there. John chapter 19, verses 16 to 37. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles that we've provided for you. They're, uh, they're at the middle of each aisle, and they're yours to take with you. If you don't have a Bible, please take it. We would love for you to have this. And we'd love to talk to you about what you read there. So, so flag somebody down sitting on the, the center of the aisle and have them pass one to you if you don't have one. It'll really help you, I think, to follow along in the, in the text of the Scriptures as we unpack the story together. I'm going to be talking about a lot of details that, are, that will be there on the page. and You can refer to them there, and I think it'll help you to connect with it better. This is the text that tells us of Jesus' death. It's the moment that, that every detail in John's story, that every step in Jesus' life has been building to. This, this death that we're going to unpack this morning, this is the, the purpose for which Jesus came into the world. It's so fitting that one of the first details in the passage we're going to read together this morning is the detail that Jesus had to carry his own cross to his execution. I think there's some symbolic power in that detail. Because here, on this night, no more than in every other phase of Jesus' life, Jesus is enabling his own death. And the most obvious emphasis in this story, in every detail that John chooses to tell us about, the most obvious emphasis is that Jesus dies on purpose. Jesus dies for his purposes. In the words that that Jesus used to tell his friends what was going to happen before it happened, I lay down my own life. No man takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. I die for my purposes, for my sheep, who I know in every hidden detail every one of their lives. I die for them. It could be, I I, I guess it's probably true that that the most familiar thing about Jesus, you know anything about him at all, you probably know that he died and probably know that he died by crucifixion. And And friends, in all of human history, in all of human history, I don't know that there has ever been a worse way to die even with the the wide variety of human cruelty that history has recorded for us. Few few ways of torturing someone have ever matched the brutality of this death that Jesus died. Crucifixion was so horrific, it was so shameful, that the elite of that time, the intelligentsia of that time, were humiliated by it, by the fact that their cultures, their societies endorsed it. 
ancient historian Josephus, who wrote and lived near the time when Jesus did, called crucifixion the most pitiable of deaths. Roman philosopher Cicero was embarrassed of the barbarity of this practice. He called it that cruel and disgusting penalty, and with good reason. The cross beam that Jesus was carrying, recorded by our text, the cross beam that he would have carried to his own execution would have been hoisted at his arrival there onto a vertical beam and fastened to it. Jesus' arms would have been fastened to that cross beam by nails driven through his hands or wrists. His legs would have been twisted in an unusual way so that a single nail could have been driven through his heels into the the vertical beam to hold him steady. And sometimes there would be a seat that would hold just enough of the body's weight to keep them fighting for life. This is how one scholar describes what came next. Stripped naked, beaten to pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasm racked the entire body. But since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. That's what Jesus went through. And these are the details that our minds lock in on. These are the details that pull on our heartstrings, that make us hurt for him. And these are precisely the details that John leaves out of his story. Another commentator says, John describes the horror that was crucifixion in a single word. Translated in our Bibles in verse 18, there they crucified him. One word, and he's done describing it. John doesn't want us focused on the physical agony that Jesus experienced. He wants us watching Jesus go to his death with a laser-like focus on his own mission. He wants us seeing Jesus' death not for the shameful defeat that it appeared to be, but as the culmination, the successful, perfectly accomplished culmination of everything his life had been about. A life lived by a script, by by a higher purpose that was laid out for him before the world even began. A higher purpose that he followed to the T. What you're going to see when we read this story together is that, I mean, we've seen this so many times in John, that while the powers that be are all operating at one level, they're seeing one set of things go on. Jesus is operating at an entirely different level. He's got his own agenda. It's hidden to everyone but him. But, but he's working his purposes. While they see one set of things going on, Jesus sees what's really going on. John wants us looking at that, at his absolute control, at his firm resolve to do what he came to do, to bring about his purposes in the, in the, the only way that he could do that. 
What John wants us to see is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the king that Israel had all, always waited for. The king that means peace and blessing to the whole world. That's who he is. But he reigns on his throne as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John wants us to see. So here's the thing. If John's main focus in this passage is Jesus' purpose-driven death, the fact that he dies on purpose, not the, not the physical agony, don't focus on what crucifixion was like, focus on the fact that Jesus knows what he's doing. He does only what he came here to do. If John wants us focused on, on the purposes that's, that are driving Jesus' death, what we've got to look for when we unpack the story, what we're meant to be, to be recognizing is the reasons for which he died. If he's dying on purpose, we have to know, well, then why did he die? Why did he have to do this? What did he have to do by his death that he couldn't do for us any other way? There's the question. That's what we're, that's what we're answering this morning as we unpack these details together. Your life and your death, every one of you, your life and your death hang in the balance in the details of this story. So why did Jesus die? What did his death accomplish? It's a, it's, it's a bit of a long story. So like last week, what I'd like to do is read it as I come to it through the sermon. We're gonna, I'm not going to read the whole story at once, but read it in sections and talk about them one at a time. I do want to ask you to stand with me now in honor of God's word to show with our bodies the respect that we have for, the, for what God has spoken to us as I read the first scenes in the story of Jesus' death. This is the word of the Lord from John chapter 19. I'm going to begin at the second half of verse 16. So, they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. You may be seated. This is God's word. Why did Jesus die? Well, the first thing we're meant to see in this opening scene is that Jesus dies to become king. We've seen this detail come up in the story already. In fact, last week, the passage that we looked at last week, the scenes just before the one we're talking about today were all about kingship. His conversation with Pilate was all about what sort of king he was going to be, a king not of this world. I'd refer you back to the, to the sermon. It should be online from last week for more details. I'm just going to touch on them this morning. The irony of this opening scene, it is just, it's thick and unmistakable. Jesus is led out carrying his own cross to the place of his execution just outside the city, this place called Golgotha. And there they crucify him in between two common criminals. John told us back at the very beginning of the book, Jesus came to his own, 
The word took on flesh. He became like us. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Just before the, the, the passage we've read this morning, the chief priests were asked by Pilate, shall I crucify your king? The one who came for them. He came to his own. And they disown all hope for God's Messiah. And they say, we have no king, no anointed one, no Messiah, but Caesar. Rejected by his own people, Jesus takes up his place in the middle of the guilty in between the outcast, surrounded by those rejected by the powers that be, right where Jesus belongs, right where he chose to be. Now, on the surface, it looks like Jesus is just a pawn in someone else's power struggle. The scene that we just read together has Pilate and the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, still going back and forth with each other, trying to throw their weight around. Pilate writes an inscription to put above Jesus on the cross. This was common practice. This is what the Romans would do so that anybody who's walking by and they see someone hanging there on a cross would know why they're hanging there and know not to do that thing, whatever it was. Don't be like this guy. So Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's another dig on these Jewish leaders. They just backed him into a corner, right? They were pulling his strings like a puppet, and he resented that. So he's getting back at them now. He's trying to shame them. He's looking at Jesus as the best that this poor, pitiful little people can ever come up with. That's what he thinks of the Jews. This is the best they've got. Here's their king. The Jews get the point. These Jewish leaders push back on him. They know they're being mocked. They want the sign changed to say this man said he was king of the Jews. What they want is to show that Jesus was a fraud, right? He claimed one thing about himself. And now, as you can see, what's perfectly clear from where he's hanging right now is that he was a fraud. Don't be like this guy. Don't take him seriously. Both of them think they're Both groups, Pilate and and the Jewish leaders, think they're exposing Jesus. Pilate thinks he's also putting the Jewish leaders in their place. What I have written, I have written. I'm not changing it for anybody. But what the reader knows, what the the one who has read up until now in John's gospel, who had just read this conversation between Jesus and Pilate, what the reader knows that's lost on Pilate and the Jewish leaders is that neither of these parties see what's going on. Not really. Jesus had always stood by his claim to kingship. In fact, in the last passage, he told Pilate that it was, it was being a king that was the reason he came. It was the whole purpose of his coming. And it's the same purpose that's driving him now. What the reader knows, what they can see in the irony of this story is that this is how Jesus becomes king. 
that even as both Pilate and the Jewish leaders think they are exposing him as a fraud, Jesus is doing what he has to do to be the king that he came to be. He doesn't get to be king, not in the way he wants to be, unless they kill him. They, in their rejection of him as king, are crowning him king. Pilate, unknown to himself, has spoken the truth. And he's put it in the languages of their known world, proclaiming not just to the Jews, but to all who will see, here's the king. This is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus died precisely to become king. This is how it happens. There's another great irony in the next scene. It's the next thing we want to highlight about why Jesus died. He died to become king, something last week's text prepared us to see. He also dies in order to be like us. From John chapter 1 on, we've seen Jesus as the word who comes to us. The one who made us becomes flesh. He becomes like us, and it's in his death more than anywhere else, that he fully identifies with us. And the details are meant to point us there with yet more irony. This one's easy to miss. I want to make sure you don't miss it. The next details start in verse 23. I'm going to read verses 23 to 29. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. While Jesus hangs there on that cross in agony, an agony that probably none of us will ever know, the soldiers that are responsible for his death are picking him clean. They're dividing up his clothes, probably his shoes, his belt, maybe his outer, his outer cloak. He is no more to these soldiers, no more human to them than some sort of goodwill bargain bin. What's going on here? Part of what's going on here is that the scriptures are being fulfilled. Jesus is operating on a script written for him before he ever entered the world. They cast lots for my clothing. He knows he's following a script, but I think there's more going on here too. 
reminds me of scenes, things I've read, things I've watched about how all war functions. Recently, been watching, rewatching the uh, the HBO miniseries called The Pacific, set in World War II. Some of the most vivid and disturbing images that come in this series, true to life from what actually went on. Some of the most disturbing images are of soldiers claiming trophies off of dead bodies. Happens all the time. Flags, swords, handguns, helmets. At one point, though, it turns even more brutal. And the soldiers, American guys a lot like me, start taking gold teeth out of the mouths of those they've killed. Like it's nothing. Now what has to happen for a normal guy, an Indiana farm boy, you know, a dock worker from Mobile, a beach bum from Southern California, a college kid from New England, what has to happen for those guys to stand over the body of somebody they killed and take their teeth out? I like the way one, one literary critic, Elaine Scarry, puts, it in, 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 puts this same question. It's a question that drives a really important study that she wrote back in the 80s. I used it some in grad school. A study of war and the effects of war. Here's how she puts it. By what perceptual process, how do you reconcile in your mind By what process does it come about that one human being can stand beside another human being in agonizing pain and not know it? Not know it to the point where he himself inflicts it? The answer to that question is is complicated, hard to come by. But, But the result is easy to recognize, and this is always true. There's a switch that has to flip. And in that switch, after that switch, to stand there unaffected by the pain of other people to the point where you're pillaging their stuff, to do that, what you have to say about that person in your mind and in your heart is that they are not human. They are not like me. They are not one of us. So where's the irony? I said it's easy to miss. John loves it. He loves irony. I think think he's writing with irony here. He's telling us these details to show us something about the beauty of Jesus. Here's the irony. John has told us from the first chapter that the God who made us and everything else that is, the word through whom all things have life, came to us in Jesus. He became like us. He took on a body like ours and a soul like ours, a mind like ours. He became like us, but he was rejected in us by his own. The soldiers, just like the Jewish leaders, have rejected Jesus. The Jewish leaders rejected him as their king. But the soldiers have looked on the word made flesh, made like them, and said, not like us not human. 
But in their rejection of Jesus, they themselves, they are following a script that they can't see. They are following a script laid out from before the world began. It is their ability to, their willingness to dehumanize Jesus, to to cast lots for his clothes while he hangs there in pain. It is their willingness to dehumanize him, to say, not like us, that enables Jesus to be like us fully all the way to death. There is no condition that we share that unites us so fully, so completely as the condition of death. And they've got to dehumanize Jesus for him to be fully human all the way to the grave. And I think the next two details in this story that we've read point to his deep desire, his life's purpose of being like us, of identifying with us, of seeing what it is to be us. I think that's what's going on. In the, I think we're supposed to see this as a contrast between Jesus and the soldiers who are bartering for his stuff. They're bartering for his stuff. He's hanging there in pain. And he's thinking not about his own pain, not about the way he's being treated by these soldiers. What's he thinking about? He's thinking about his mom. She's standing there watching her firstborn son, the one who had, who had given her so much joy, who had introduced her to the beauty of motherhood, the one whom she had watched grow in all of his greatness, the one whom she had sorrowed over as, he, as his mission took him further and further away from her, the one whom she had looked towards with joy, hoping to see the things promised to her come to be reality. She's now watching him die. This wasn't what she expected. The angel didn't tell her this was going to happen. Jesus knows what it feels like to be his mother. He looks on her, and despite his own pain, he's worried about her. Jesus goes around what was expected at that time. He doesn't commit his mother to his brothers. They didn't believe in him. They weren't on board. He turns to the disciple that he loved, probably the disciple who wrote this story, and he gives his mother to her. Or his, to his mother to, to him. He charges him to take care of her. He calls on her to look to him. He is taking care of her life while his own slips away. I think the next detail is meant to point us to the same thing. Jesus identifying with us where we are, what it's like to be us, thinking not of himself and his own pain, but of us. I think that's the deeper meaning behind his cry that he's thirsty. So again, at one level, he's following a script. He knows what the prophets have said, what the psalmists have said, and his whole life, even now his own death, is is following out that script. He says, I thirst because it was written. But he says, I thirst also because he was thirsty. His body was crying out for something to drink. I think it was even deeper than that, though. In the context of John's gospel, the fact that Jesus is thirsty has huge significance. Over and over, John, in recording Jesus' words, has pointed us back to water, to drinking, to satisfaction. Over and over, he's described his own ministry as coming to people who were thirsty so that they would be satisfied forever. John chapter 4 had told us of Jesus coming to a restless and dissatisfied, shamed woman of Samaria, an outcast of outcasts, promising her that he could give her living water so powerful that, quote, 
whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty forever. Jesus is the one who promised in chapter 6, verse 35, that whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus came to satisfy thirsty people. But to satisfy thirsty people, Jesus first had to become like them. Jesus had to be thirsty. Not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually thirsty for the God who was life to him, who had now abandoned him as he took what we deserved. The river of living water had to become thirsty. I love the way N.T. Wright put this. He wrote, Had the water of life failed? Had the wine run out for good? He saved others. Could he not save himself? As with the crown of thorns and the mocking purple robe, this, John is saying, is part of the truth of it all. This is how Jesus must do what only he can do. He must come to the place where everyone else is. The place of thirst, of shame, and of death. That is his glory. And yes, his joy. Jesus had to die to become king. He had to die to fully be like us. And he had to die finally. Jesus dies finally to set us free. He died to set us free. Not merely to understand us or to empathize with us, though empathize he did. He came to set us free. This week at our, our small group at our house, uh, some friends were telling me about this documentary called Living on One Dollar. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I was reading about it this week. It looks really interesting. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It, it's a group of friends who go to Guatemala, and they, they try to live there on what I guess the average uh, amount of money is for people who live there and see what life would be like. So for I think it's two months they live on a dollar a day. And they, they suffer the physical effects that are normal for people who have that kind of that amount of resources to live on. Powerful film, according to the reviews that I read. But there's something limited about that, right? That project is one of understanding. They go there to empathize with what it's like to be people living on a dollar a day. But they come home. Two months later, they come home. And they go back to life probably pretty much as usual. What they can do for the people of Guatemala stops at empathy. They can empathize and help others empathize. But Jesus, the word made flesh, comes to us not as a tourist. He comes to us not just to understand another way of being. He comes to transform us and to set us free. He comes not as an anthropologist, but as a rescuer on a mission that he accomplishes to the full. The most striking detail in the whole story, the detail I want you to leave thinking about this morning, is the one that comes next. I'm going to read verses 30 to 37. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, 
it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus has had his drink. He knows that his work is done. He says, it is finished. Bows his head. And gives up his spirit. Now, given everything that John has said about his death to this point, it has to end this way. His death was his purpose, his plan all along. And when Jesus says, It is finished, he's not saying, I give up. I just can't go on any longer. The word he uses means, It's done. Completed, accomplished. It's a word that's used, it's been discovered on, on text, ancient text, used for a bill that's been fully paid, a list of, of, of charges to an account, stamped. It is finished, over, done. It's the same root word that he used in John chapter 13 when John tells us that Jesus loved his own to the end. He loved them to the end. He loved them till it was done. It's a cry of victory, not of defeat. It's the cry of, of the mother whose baby is delivered. It's the cry of the grad student whose dissertation is defended. It's the cry of an Iron Man who's just crossed the finish line in his marathon or his triathlon. And it's followed up by the most striking symbol, the most striking symbol of Jesus' absolute control over what's going on here. Jesus picks the moment of his own death. He hangs there until it is finished, and then he dies, not before he's ready. No one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. I know my sheep. I know what they need. I know everything that every, every one of them has ever done wrong. I know exactly what it's going to take to set them free from the penalty of the sins they've committed and can't undo, from the power of the sin that holds their life in its hands. I know what they need. I have hung here until it is finished. I have drank the cup that my father prepared for me. I have turned it over and set it down. It's gone. Done. Complete. So he bows his head and he gives up his spirit in victory. What had Jesus finished? Why did he have to die to become king? All I have time for is to point you to the text that John quotes. Because those details are the answer. What did Jesus finish? The last scene 
has us on the day before the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders concerned that the land would be defiled by the presence of these dead bodies might affect the ability to, their ability to enjoy the, the high holy day that that Sabbath represented, the Sabbath of the week of Passover. So they ask the Roman soldiers to hasten the death process. The way they'd do that would be to crack the legs of the people who were still struggling to breathe. That way they couldn't push up with their legs to get their chest open to take in air. They would just be helpless and they would quickly asphyxiate. They would run out of air and they would die. But they come to Jesus and he's already dead. He shouldn't be dead yet. It should take longer than this just to make sure one of the soldiers jabs a spear into his side just to make sure that he's dead and blood and water run down. Now, we all want to know what that blood and water was about. No one really knows. It's, it's, a, it's, it's not clear what the significance may have been of that. What is clear is what John sees in this event. It's clear because he points us to the two scriptures. I'd encourage you to look at them on your own time today. The first one that he mentions is, is probably Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. People of Israel are preparing to celebrate Passover. Passover, where God would deliver them from their bondage to Egypt. And what it was going to take, because they didn't deserve this deliverance, was the death of a lamb. And what this lamb, what would have to be true of this lamb, Exodus twelve forty six says, is that not one of his bones could be broken. He's got to be perfect and without blemish. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, John is, is broadcasting this to us in HD, okay? Jesus, is, Jesus has been named by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is dying right now in the middle of Passover week, and, his, and not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus is the ultimate Passover Lamb. When he says it's finished, he knows that he has been the sacrifice Israel had always been waiting for, one that wouldn't have to be repeated, so that every sin committed by every one of his sheep could be once and forever wiped away. Debt is paid. That's what he means. And the second citation is from Zechariah 12. Read that one on your own time. Zechariah 12. They will look on him whom they have pierced. They will be struck with grief. They will mourn over Their piercing of me, God says. And then at the beginning of Zechariah 13, here's the effect of the piercing of God himself. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Not only is he the sacrifice who wipes away the penalty of death, he is the pierced one who can make new all who look on him and mourn. He has the power not just to change what you have done and can't undo, but to make you something other than what you are. He can, as the old hymn puts it, I can't, I can't improve on this. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure Save from wrath and make me pure. It is finished. It is finished. So we look to him and find life. Father, you have done what's necessary. Help us to trust you with it and to live in the victory that Jesus has won for us. To live lives where shame has no place, 
where surrender to the power of sin is unnecessary. Where we actually believe and live as if it is finished and nothing hangs over us anymore. Help us to live in the freedom for which you have set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.